praise God. It's so good to be with you all. And as has been uh, said, you know, celebrating our uh, nation's uh, history and liberty and so forth. But as we as Christians also know that the real liberty is found in Christ and in what he wants to do in our lives as his life flows, we're set more and more free and we increase or he increases in us, and then we decrease, but he increases. And so we're celebrating uh, that life that he wants to give, the breakthrough he wants to bring in our churches, in our nation, and we look for that. And I just wanted to actually share with you this morning on a few thoughts of uh, how we, we desire God to move. We're looking for that uh, outpouring of the Spirit of God for revival And a verse that I think summarizes it so well is in Psalm 133 and verse 3. Now let's read that together if we could. Psalm 133 verse 3 says, It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. You know, we're looking for God to command his blessing of life towards his people and for his life to flow down to us, to come upon us, for us to experience it. You know, the promise and blessing of God is heavenly life. And I love how it says the Lord commands his blessing. Oh, I want God to command his blessing upon us, upon us as a, as a church, as individuals, as a fellowship, and, you know, that his life would forever flow. Now, this is not the main thought. I'm going to get into another one um, here in a moment, but I, I just wanted to point out the delivery system of his blessing and how it comes. You know, it's the dew. It's those little drops that come down upon the mountains of Zion as we ascend his holy hill and come before him each morning, we receive life. And that's what God desires to give to us. And, and I don't want to give the wrong impression. We're praying for revival in our church. We desperately want it. We need it. We're crying out uh, for hit for him to move. We believe it's coming, but you know, in one sense, we also want to remember the purpose. What's the purpose of God moving? It's so that we learn to rely upon the dew that falls upon his heavenly mountain so that we can receive life each day as we meet with him to receive life so that something takes place, right? So that something is, is happening in our lives. And what is that change? What, what is to take place in us? It's Christ being formed in us. Or as it says in that beautiful verse, as Paul says in Colossians 1.27, he says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's our desire. That's what we, that what, well, that's actually God's desire. The Father's desire is to see Christ in us. Or as Paul also says in Galatians 4.19, he said, My little children, of whom I travail in birth until Christ be formed in you. Until Christ is formed. That word formed means uh, shaped, molded, fashion. God wants to craft the image of his son 
within our very lives. And the thing we remember is that we don't need revival for that, do we? That can happen right now, today. We can allow Christ to form his image within our lives, within our hearts, as we feed upon him, as we feed upon the dew of heaven, as we allow him to work, and we respond to his leading and his working today. The Father wants to form Christ in us. That's the end goal and the outcome that we're looking for. Of course, revival just makes that happen a lot faster as he's moving, as he's working. Uh, it happens on a greater scale as well. Right? The first fruits is a small amount, but God wants a mighty harvest. And so we need an outpouring of his spirit to do that. Of course, it also breaks the strongholds. It breaks the opposition. What is preventing him from doing this in a mighty way. But, you know, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is Christ being formed in us? Are we being made ready as a bride, prepared and adorned for her bridegroom? Now, the kind of the main message I wanted to get into is back in Psalm 133, I mentioned there's some other aspects because that has a certain theme, doesn't it? Right, Psalm 133 talks about the anointing of unity. The anointing of unity. And, you know, people have had visions of the last days. And, of course, the scriptures talk about the church of the last days being a bride. You know, come together, united. And, you know, as one for the bridegroom. You know, we need that. We need the anointing of unity, that we can come together as one body flowing, as one people with one heart, one mind, right? One doctrine. Eventually we're going to get there. But we need the anointing of unity for that to take place. Now, one, Psalm 133 was one of the pilgrim songs. And they would sing that as they came to the feasts, you know, as they traveled. You know, we all like to sing songs as we travel. This, these days we just, you know, turn it on. They didn't have uh, MP3 players or even radios back then. Believe it or not, they had to sing it. And so they would sing the songs of Zion as they went up to celebrate the feasts. And this was one of those. You know, it was one of the Psalms of Ascension as they went to worship. And so let's read this together. It's only three verses, so it won't take a long time. So Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. And it's such a beautiful thought in this psalm. You know, as the pilgrims ascended to God's city, they wanted to just be united in worship and praise of their heavenly father. And that's the same thing we need to be today, that God is, wants to accomplish in us. And so this thought of unity is so important because, you know, as I've mentioned, you see descriptions of the church in the last days. It is a group that has become united become glorious, or 
also is described as an army with banners. And the banners means they've captured the banners of their enemies. They're, they're such a victorious army. And there's no victorious army that's not united, flowing together as one, working together, overcome, overcoming and conquering. We need that unity today in our lives, in our midst, in our churches. But there's something important to understand about this unity that I wanted to consider. It's described as a holy anointing oil that came down upon the high priest and then flowed down. It's a holy anointing oil, and it would allow the priest to enter within the veil, as Pastor Wallace was sharing about atonement. The high priest would enter within the veil because he was anointed to do so and minister unto God. And and there's something we can understand about this anointing oil. It was made up of, of certain ingredients, um, you can refer, if you're taking notes, to Exodus chapter 30. It talks about those ingredients. And there were four main ingredients that were added to olive oil to make this holy anointed oil. And I, I wanted to look at them and just consider them this morning. And I'm going to consider them in order of weight. Uh, not as they're given in the scriptures, but the order of weight. And so there was some myrrh added to this oil. And myrrh speaks of meekness. And it was 500 shekels of myrrh. There was also cassia, which speaks of humility. And there were 500 shekels of cassia added. And then there was cinnamon, which speaks of goodness. There were 250 shekels of cinnamon added. And then also calamus, speaking of gentleness, which was 250 shekels. And so there were some that were double, and then there were others. And so what's, what, what's important for us to understand about this, the holy anointing oil? Say, like, Isn't this kind of an obscure thing, right? The oil that was put upon the priest to go into the holy place once a year? Well, if we understand that God is calling us to be priests and to go within the veil, and that this oil is made up of some things that represent what he wants to happen in our lives, and all of this is so that we can be united as a church. But we want to understand these things and make sure they're taking place in our midst and in our lives. You know, there's something about this anointing when you consider it with some of the other aspects of the anointing of the Lord. You know, you think about King David, you know, he was anointed to lead Israel. He was anointed. He was given that, that anointing by God, that divine uh, ability, and somehow he was able to take a group of misfits, right? Because you read about the description of them. They were those in distress and debt and discontent, um, and he was able to lead them to victory somehow. And it was the anointing of God that came upon him to do that. And thank God for that anointing. Solomon was also anointed, right? He was anointed with wisdom, and he was able to make right decisions and, and to understand what to do in certain things for Israel and, and to make decisions. We know it didn't actually end that well for him in, in his life, even though he was anointed, he wasn't changed within. Samson was anointed with strength. I mean, he, when you think of what he did, and you, you actually just think about putting ourselves in that position, what would it be like to approach these big heavy gates of a city that are probably attached to stone walls you know, and just go up and say, I think I'm going to rip these gates 
off the, you know, off the walls, and I'm going to carry them almost 40 miles to, to my hometown or you know, back to Israel. That was an anointing. I would appreciate some anointing of strength today. I'm, would anyone else like the anointing of strength? Right? Amen. There's a few out there. You must all be doing pretty well. Right? But, you know, even with Samson, that anointing, it didn't change his heart, did it? He was out consorting with people he shouldn't have been. You see, there was certain anointings that came upon God's people, but there's something specific about this anointing of unity, that if we want to flow together as a people, as a body of Christ, there's something that has to happen, and it's seen in these ingredients. It's something that has to happen within. And if these things are not taking place within, we will not be able to flow in this anointing of unity as God is describing it in his word. And so we want to take note of that. We want to pay attention. Lord, do whatever it takes in me because I want to flow in this blessed anointing of unity that you want to come upon your glorious bride. And the first thing we can understand about this, I mentioned myrrh represents meekness. Meekness basically means one who is under control. Have you ever experienced someone who is out of control? Maybe something comes to mind, maybe even a specific situation or a person pops into your mind, that, that person was out of control. <laughs> that wasn't pleasant to be around. You know, in our uh, experience of pastoring over the years, we've met a few examples of people who are out of control. You know, when something can't be controlled, it's almost worthless and even dangerous, right? When, when you lose control of something, that brings in an element of danger. In many years when I used to work maintenance and I also drove a school bus here up at Waverly, um, someone donated uh, actually a small school bus to us. And it was really nice in the sense it was, it had one of those, you know, doors that open, you know, I could drive the bus and let them in and open the door and close the door. You know, it was really nice. There was one problem. It was scary to drive. Uh, I think the steering was worn out. And so I would try and drive that on the road and I was doing all I could to just try and keep that center because it just wanted to, you know, go like that all over the place. And I, I got back up and said, I don't know if I can drive that thing. Like, what, what's wrong with it? It's a great bus. Well, have you tried to drive it? Like, no. Uh, you could just barely control it, and I think we ended up getting rid of it. It wasn't worth trying to fix it up and save it. You know, if something can't be controlled, it, there's not a lot of value to it. Even though it looks great, and it seems like it has great potential. Boy, if it can't be controlled. But think about how the Lord looks at us and he wants to use us and he wants to, he wants to put his, his glory upon us and cause his, you know, to, to speak through us, to work through us. But if we can't be under his control, what can he do? That's meekness. Meekness is saying, Lord, I know you want to work in me. And so I'm going to let you do that. 
You know, God wants to prepare us. He wants to train us and equip us and correct us and teach us. Sometimes that involves submitting even when we don't even understand why we have to. You know, I wonder, how often does a horse understand where it's being led? Probably not a lot. It just, the rider hits the rein. I'm not really a horse person. I think you just kind of do the reins and maybe tickle their sides. I don't know. But a good horse that's been trained understands they want to go. But, it, but you know, how many horses say, well, wait, tell me where you're going first. I want to understand. There better be oats at the end of this journey. A horse would not be very useful if that was what it was like every time the rider said, let's go, giddy up. You see, but a horse that's been trained, in fact, this Greek word, prowa, prowos, I've ne- I can never pronounce that, prowos, it's actually used in a historical context to describe horses that have been trained. Horses are powerful and mighty, but if they've been trained, they're meek. And they can respond to the leading of the master. Of course, it takes a lot of training. So that's why meekness is a double portion. It's 500 shekels instead of 250. Um, We need a double portion of meekness, of accepting what God wants to do in us, allowing him to work in us, especially when it involves how we relate to each other. There's a lot more we could say about that, but there's three other ingredients we want to touch on. But we need meekness in the last days. And we we need meekness today, don't we? If we're going to flow together in unity. Well, what else will enable us to flow together in unity? Humility. Humility. We also need a double portion of humility because that's 500 shekels as well. Humility is basically the ability to take the low place. We're willing to not be number one, or maybe not even number two, three, or four, right? Who knows? It's up to the Lord where we are on the list. But it's, it's it's allowing others to be exalted and us to take the low place, knowing that God will lift us up in due time to be with him in heavenly places. Peter said something important. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, he said, Likewise, you younger, submit unto the elder. All of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, which is the opposite of humility. Those who are lifted up and and demand their way and to be number one and, and so forth. He resists those. We don't want resistance from heaven. But he gives grace to the humble. Those who are willing to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, knowing that he will exalt them and lift them up in due time. And Peter uses this phrase to describe it. It's actually not found anywhere else in scripture. He says, we are to be clothed with humility. And it's actually thought that this is referring to the historical garment of of his day, that a servant would wear. And so he was literally telling his people, put on the garment of a slave. Now, if you weren't a slave in in ancient times, 
you would say, I don't want to be a slave. It was not a pleasant experience. Your life was not your own. You literally could not do anything in your own will. You had to, you had to submit to the will of your master basically and everything as soon as you op- opened your eyes until you laid back down. And Peter is saying, saints, clothe yourself with that garment of a servant. That's how we have to relate one to another. And a servant always recognizes the master as up here and the servant is down there. But that's the way to true unity. You know, the disciples had a lot of trouble flowing together in the beginning, right? We can read about that in the Gospels. Right? Whenever it talks about, it almost seems like whenever they had any downtime, their conversation kind of reverted back to this topic. Who's going to be greater? And they must have gone around. I don't know how often that happened in the three and a half years, but it seems like it happened a lot. I don't, it seems like it happened more than it was even mentioned in on the scriptures of, well, who's going to be greater? You know, who was going to do what and so forth. But that's our human nature. That's, that is natural to us. It's not good, but it's natural anyway. You know, to look at each other and start evaluating and competing. You know, I can be competitive at times and, you know, you're like, well, that person can do that. I think I need to, I need to work so I'm better at that than that person. It's who we are. Or maybe we could even get to that point where we say, well, it's my way that we're going to do things. Not your way. It's my way. That's not very conductive to unity, is it? It's hard to flow together when everyone is saying, nope, my way, not your way. You know, when you think about revival, sometimes you think, oh, it's going to be so glorious in revival. Everyone's going to get along. Everyone's going to think the same. Everyone's going to be doing the same. But you know, in revival, we're still going to be human beings, aren't we? We're still going to have our own way of thinking. We're still going to have our quirks. We're going to still have, you know, our tendencies. Well, if we're the same, how do we get along? Well, maybe it's that we've learned to flow in the anointing of unity in these four aspects. We're, going to, we're still going to rub each other the wrong way can, at times. The difference will be humility will reign supreme. Humility will reign. And we'll realize the only way to victory and glory is by putting off the garments of glory and reigning and being number one and putting on the garment of serving others and placing them before us as Christ did. He put off his garments of glory. And the very last thing is he girded himself with a towel, which was a garment of the lowest. You know, you had different classes of servants. Well, when, when Christ put the towel on him and, you know, the foot washing servant was the lowest of the low of the servants washing those smelly feet back in the day. And so that's, that was the last example he gave to us. Be clothed as a servant. Then the third aspect, goodness. Goodness. The commentator John Gill said, the glory of God lies in goodness. Now, it's the foundation and the essence of who God is. He revealed himself to Moses as being altogether good. And goodness basically means without evil. 
the absence of evil. You know, in God, there is no evil. He's only good. And we look to him and everything that comes from him is good. And everything he wants to do in our lives is good. And even if we let him put his hand upon the evil things we're experiencing, he turns them for good. As we follow him, as we love him and respond to his call and his leading, he does everything good. But it's hard for us. It's hard for us as as human beings, right? Because essentially, we are evil, right? In our nature, the nature we were born with, right? In that context. And that's why, you know, you really can't trust anyone. Uh, And that's kind of sad. You know, even a few years ago, you you could trust people. You know, you used to be able to keep your doors unlocked and cars unlocked, depending on where you live. Uh, we don't where, we're, where we live. But, you know, you can't trust anyone. You kind of always have to be suspicious. If you get a phone call during dinner, usually, and they say, you've won a free trip, or you've won something, or I'm going to give you the greatest deal you've ever heard, be suspicious. There's probably a catch. Because man essentially has that same heart all over the world. The heart of man is desperately wicked, as Jeremiah said. But in when we're relating with God and with other people, we have to have a change of our attitude and our outlook with God. Because he is altogether good. Everything he does is for our good. Everything he allows to come into our sphere of existence is good and managed by him and and his goodness. You know, a large part of flowing in the goodness of God is that recognition. Because we, we look at it with our eyes and we see evil, like Job did. He just saw a lot of evil. And he did see, he saw a lot of adversity and terrible situations But God had to open his eyes to see the goodness of God working to make him more righteous, to do a deeper work. And, you know, we have to learn to recognize that God is good in everything he does. And if we are loving him and doing what he's called us to do, he will turn all things for good. And, you know, even the things we don't understand, the things that are difficult, you know, I think of Israel when they were in the wilderness, they, they were delivered. They saw the power of God. And they would go through a difficult situation. But how would they react? They'd say, Lord, this is not right. This is not fair. This is not good, a good situation. This is an evil situation. I don't agree with this, with what's being done. Right? Those are all different ways we can respond to situations like Israel did. But you know, what it, when it comes down to it, what is that saying? It's really saying, Lord, you're not good. I don't like this situation that you allowed, that you brought me into. They are saying God was evil for taking them through that situation. When in reality, it was his goodness that he was trying to meet with them, prepare them for their inheritance, to teach them, to train them, to trust, and to look to him 
to become strong in faith and to obey. All of the things necessary to fight, fight the giants in the land, God had 10 training sessions for them, and they failed every one of them. Only two people truly understood and walked in the goodness of God. And who were those? Caleb and Joshua, that's right. They had a different spirit. And their testimony in Numbers 14, 8 and 9, they said, if the, they said, if the Lord delights in us, he's going to bring us into the land. He'll give it to us. Just don't rebel against the Lord or fear the people. The Lord is with us. You see, they learned to recognize the, recognize the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. They saw his goodness. Now, with their natural eyes, they saw giants. But they weren't looking with their natural eyes. They were looking with the eyes of faith, the eyes of the Spirit. And they said, well, I believe God is good, and he's so good that he's going to enable us to, to defeat these giants and bring them down and to give us an inheritance in this land. And if we learn to recognize the goodness of God in every situation and to be able to flow in that, then we'll be able to flow with others. Because we're going to be in situations with others that do not seem very good. Right? And we'll even see things in other people that, well, that's not good. That doesn't look good. They might even rub us the wrong way. But yet, we also have to recognize that God is working, that God is in control, that God controls every single person he, he brings into our life, and he uses them. I often refer to Brother Sandpaper and Sister Scrubbrush. Somehow, God is always able to fit them into our lives in some way and really work at those rough areas of our character. You know, I think... I think wood can be shaped into some of the most beautiful things, but they don't, it doesn't always look good at the start. Sometimes you need a lot of sandpaper to get it, but when it does, it can be shaped into something so beautiful. But if we say, oh, I rebuke you, brother sandpaper. I don't think you're an upright person. Well, they might not be, but God might be using them for our good. If we recognize the goodness of God, and it might be a situation we're in. Oh, I don't, think God, I don't think God wants me to be in this situation because this is hard. Well, is it the goodness of God that he's trying to work in us for good? You see, if we want to flow in unity, we have to flow in his goodness. To recognize it and then flow in it. The last quality is gentleness. Gentleness. That has a large part in how well we're going to get together get, or get along with each other, doesn't it? Right? Gentleness. If someone's not gentle or, and they're harsh, that makes it challenging to be with them, especially when they talk about things or even they talk about you. Gentleness. You know, I gave a passing reference to David, how he was anointed to lead and you know, you can often think of that famous verse that he gives in Psalm 18, 
Right? He took that group of misfits, and they're very grumpy people. They probably were not enjoyable to be around a bunch of people who are discontent and in distress and in debt. Right? You don't always think of them having nice things to say. And to being, being around them might not have been pleasant, but somehow he was able to lead them to victory. And they, they were transformed into David's mighty men. But what was David's testimony? Psalm 18 and verse 35, he said, Lord, now this is looking back at what he did. He said, Lord, you have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand held me up and your gentleness has made me great. He had become king and he was a great king too. But he was looking back and he said, Lord, of all the qualities it was your gentleness that made me great. I often think about that. There are a lot of qualities that we looked at. You know, we think of like Samson and his strength and, and Solomon and his wisdom. Now we need both of those. We need wisdom. It's the principal thing. But yet he said it was God's gentleness that made him great. And this is something that was divinely imparted. And so David is kind of implying that it didn't come to him naturally. Lord, it's, it was your gentleness. He probably in himself wanted to get upset at this group of misfits. But he looked to God and he said, Lord, how should I lead them? How can I lead these people? What's the answer here? I'm, I'm guessing here, but I don't know if I'm too far off. And, you know, I just wonder if the Lord said, well, how did you lead your sheep? How did you lead that little flock? Were you rough with them? Or were you gentle? And David was a good shepherd, and he said, well, I was gentle. And so he just led them in gentleness, allowed God to work in them and bring that transformative process to pass. And they became united, didn't they? They became an army that was almost pretty much undefeated in that sense. And so if we want to flow in the anointing of unity, we have to become that glorious church. We have to flow in gentleness. And when we say flow in gentleness, we need to respond in gentleness. And then we will, come, we will become that great and glorious body of believers. And so we are a people looking for a breakthrough today in our church, in our home life in our families. You know, we're praying for loved ones and we're saying, Lord, they need a breakthrough. Lord, we're crying out for you to move. But the question is, are we ready? Because when the breakthrough comes, you know, you think about it, a lot of our troubles that we have stem from people and we're praying for a breakthrough. And what's going to happen? Lots more people. Lots more problems. We need the anointing of unity working and operating in us as God has prepared our hearts in these ways. There aren't going to be a lot of perfect people that come in. Actually, I don't think any perfect people are going to come in. That would be nice. But there'll be people, even though they have a few rough edges, there'll be a people ready to be transformed as we can flow with them in unity and have, and allow them to see Christ as he's been formed in us.
God says a transformation will take place. We will become his anointed ones. And we can flow in that precious ointment, oint, anointing that came upon the high priest who is Christ. And it flows down to his body. And it flows through us going out to our families, to our church, to our communities, to the nations. But it, it is because those ingredients have been formed within us and in our lives. We need a double portion of meekness and humility. Lord, do that in us. Of being under the control and command of the Lord and clothing ourselves with the garment of a servant. Also learning to recognize and acknowledging and flowing in his goodness that God is good all of the time and allowing his gentleness to make us great. When that takes place, his glorious church will arise. It will arise in this place because it will arise in us. Lord, we thank you for the work of glory you desire to do. Lord, for that wonderful anointing that you desire to bring upon your church and your people. And so, Lord, we just cry out to you today. Lord, come afresh. Lord, we recognize that for your anointing of unity to come, we have to change. Lord, we need to be transformed. Lord, we need these ingredients, Lord, worked and formed within our lives. And so, Lord, we invite you to come. Holy Spirit, come and work these beautiful qualities from heaven within our hearts. Oh Lord, lead us, oh God, in meekness, in humility. Oh Lord, in goodness and in gentleness. Oh Lord, raise us up, Lord, that your image will be formed and stamped within us that we could flow together as your wonderful and glorious body. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.